Chapters nine and ten of Miss Ashton's New Pupil by Mrs. S. S. Robbins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Abigail Rasmussen in January two thousand and twelve. Chapter nine, Miss Ashton's advice. That the formation of such an insignificant thing as this Demosthenic Club should have affected girls like Dorothy Otley and Marion Park would have seemed impossible but it was destined to in ways and times that were beyond their control. When the club was making its selection of members, among those most sought were Marion and Dorothy. Marion, with her cheery social western manners, made her way rapidly into one of those favoritisms which are so common in girls' boarding schools. She always had a pleasant word for everyone, and always was ready to do a kind, generous act. She was so pretty, too, and dressed so simply and neatly, that there was nothing to find fault with, even if the girls had not been, as girls are, in truth, as a class, generous, noble, on the alert to see what is good, rather than what is otherwise, in those with whom they live. As for Dorothy, she was the model girl of the school. The teachers trusted and loved her, so did the pupils. No one among them all said how the sea had browned and almost roughened her plain face, how hard work, anxiety, and poor fare had stunted her growth, how carrying the cross children, too big and too heavy, had given a stoop to her delicate shoulders, and knots on her hands that told too plainly of burdens they were unable to lift. All that the school saw or thought of was the gentle love that was always in the large gray eyes, the kind words that the firm lips never failed to speak, and the steady, straightforward, honorable life of the best scholar. "'If we can only get those two, said President Jenny Barton, "'our club is made.' "'They are so good they'll spoil the fun,' said Mammy Smith. "'For shame!' said Martha Dodd. You don't suppose the daughter of a missionary would join a club of which good girls cannot be members? Or the cousin of so famous a man as Cain, the Arctic explorer, said Sophie Cain. Don't dispute, girls. We seem to spend half our time wrangling. And the president knocked, with what she made answer for the speaker's gavel, noisily on the table. I nominate our vice-president, Miss Underwood, to inform these young ladies of their having been chosen, and to report from them at our next meeting. Is the nomination accepted? Aye, aye, from the club. In accordance with this request, Kate Underwood had interviewed Marion and Dorothy secretly, and had received from both a positive refusal. I have no time for secret societies, said Dorothy with a good-natured laugh. I want twice as many hours for my studies. Thank you all the same, Kate. Secret society? What is that? asked Marion. What is it secret for? What do you do in it that you don't want to have known? I don't like the secret part of it. My father used to tell me about the secret societies in Yale College, and they were full of boys' scrapes. He nearly got turned out of college for his part in one of them, and if I should get turned out from here, it would break his heart. No, thank you. I'd better not. So, sure that no from them meant no, Kate had reported to the club, and received permission to invite Susan Downer and Gladys Philbrick in their places. Sue will come, of course, and be glad to, the club said. 
Really, on the whole, she will be better than Dorothy, for Dorothy always wants to toe the line. Of Gladys, they by no means felt so sure. She is and she isn't, Lucy Snow said. But she has lots of money, and that means splendid spreads. But she won't. She won't. Martha Dodd stopped. Won't what? asked the president, in a most dignified manner. Won't go through the corridors with her boots in her hands, said Mammy, with a rueful face, and get dosed. She'd stamp right along into Miss Ashton's room and say, Miss Ashton, I'm late. Mark me, will you? She will keep us all straight, then. I vote for Gladys. And the first to hold up her hands, both of them, was Missionary Dodd. So Gladys and Susan were invited to become members of the club, and accepted gladly, not knowing their roommates had declined the same honor. It was in this way that the club was to influence the rooms. October, the regal month, when nature puts on her most precious vestments, dons her crowns of gold, clothes herself in scarlet robes, with girdles of richest browns, has a half-hushed note of sadness in the anthems she sings through the dropping leaves, listens for the farewell of departing birds, and tries in vain to call back to the browning earth the dying flowers. This month was always considered in Montrose Academy the time for settling down to hard work in earnest. Vacation, with its rest and its pleasures, seemed far beyond the life of the two hundred young girls who had entered into and been absorbed by the present, and who were roused by ambitions for the future. Marion's roommates went thoroughly into the work required of them. "'Your faithfulness during the first six weeks of the term,' Miss Ashton had said to them in one of her morning talks, "'will determine your standard for the year. Do not any of you think you can be indolent now?' and pick up your neglected studies by and by. You may trust my experience when I tell you that, in the whole number of years since I have been connected with this school, I never knew a pupil who failed in her duties during the first half of the first term of the year, who afterwards did, indeed, could, make up the lost opportunities. It is not only what you lose out of the passing recitation that you can never find again, but of even more consequence— it is what you lose in forming honest, faithful habits of study. There are many different ways of studying. I have often tried to make these plain to you. I will repeat them. First, learn to give your whole attention to your lesson. Fix your mind upon it. This sounds as if it would be an easy thing to do, but in truth it is very difficult. I am sorry to say I do not think there are a dozen girls among you who can do this successfully even after years of training. You can train your body to accomplish wonders, but it is hard to believe that the mind is even more capable of being brought into subjection by the will than the body, and to do that, to make your mind your servant, is to accomplish the greatest result of your education. Only as far as your study and your general life here do that are they of any true value to you. You will ask me, how are you to fix your attention when there are so many things going on around you to distract your thoughts? I can only answer that as our minds are in many respects of different orders, so no general rule can be given. If you will, each one faithfully make the attempt, I have no doubt you will succeed, in just the same proportion as you are faithful. 
it may be as well, as I consider this the keystone of all good study, that I should leave the other helps and hindrances for some future talk. And it will give me a great deal of pleasure if I can hear from any of you at the end of a week's trial that you have found yourselves helped by my advice. It speaks well for Miss Ashton's influence over her school that there was not a pupil there who was not moved by what she had said. To be sure, its effect was not equally apparent. There were some who had scant minds to fix, and what nature had been niggardly in bestowing, they had fritted away in a trifling life. But for the earnest girls, those who truly longed to make the most of themselves, and to be able to do a worthy work in the life before them, such advice became at once a help. "'It sounds like my mother's letter to me,' Marion Park said to Dorothy as they went together to their room. She insists that it is not so much the facts we learn as the help they give us in the use of our minds. I wonder if all educated people think the same. All thoroughly educated people, I am sure, do, answered Dorothy. Sometimes I feel as if my mind was a musical instrument, and if I didn't know every note in it, the only sounds I should ever hear from it would be discords, at which, rather Irish comparison, both girls laughed. End of chapter 9 Chapter 10 Choosing a Profession There was one peculiarity of Montrose Academy that had been slow to recommend itself to the parents of its pupils. That was the elective system, which was adopted after much controversy on the part of the Board of Trustees. The more conservative insisted that the prosperity of the past had shown the wisdom of keeping strictly to a curriculum that did not allow individual choice of studies. The newer element in the board were equally sure that to oblige a girl to go through a course of Latin and Greek, of higher mathematics, of logic and geology, who on leaving school would never have the slightest use for them, was simply a waste of time. A compromise was made at length by which, for five years, the elective system should be practiced, it being claimed that no shorter time could fairly prove its success or its failure, and during this period certain studies of the old course should be insisted upon. First and foremost, the Bible, the others chosen to depend upon the class. The year of Marion's entering the school was the second of the experiment, and after joining the middle class and having her regular lessons assigned to her, she was not a little surprised, and in truth confused, by Miss Ashton asking her, as if it was a matter of course, "'What do you intend to do in the future?' As if she expected her to have her future all mapped out, and was to begin at once her preparation for it. Miss Ashton saw her embarrassment, and helped her by saying, "'Many of the young ladies come here with very definite plans. For instance, your roommate Dorothy is fitting for a teacher.' and a very fine one she will make. Gladys is making special study of everything pertaining to natural science, geology, botany, physics, and chemistry. She intends, when she goes back to Florida, to become an agriculturalist. I dare say you have already heard her talk of the wonderful possibilities to be found there. Her father is an enthusiast in the work, and she seems to fit herself to be his able assistant." Susan wants to be a banker, and avails herself of every help she can find toward it. You see, our little lame girl Helen, she is to be an artist, and devotes all her spare time to courses in art. 
She is in the second year and has made wonderful progress in shading in charcoal from casts and molds. She uses paints, both oils and watercolors, but those do not come in our regular course. If we see any special talent in a pupil in any line, we do not confine ourselves to what we can do for her, but we call in extra help from abroad. Kate Underwood is to be a lawyer. Mammy Smith has a new chosen profession for every new year, but as she is an only child and her mother is wealthy, she will never enter one. I might go on through perhaps an eighth of the school and point out to you girls who are studying with an aim. For the greater number, they are content to go on with the regular curriculum as their only object and that of their parents for them seems to be to secure sufficient education to make them pass creditably through the common life of ordinary women. I thought you might have a definite object in view, and as you are now fairly started in your classes, and as your teachers tell me are doing very well, if you had a plan, you could find time to choose such other studies as would help you. This was new to Marion. She asked for time to think it over, which Miss Ashton gladly allowed her. She had in her heart made her choice, but that, with all the other advantages offered, she could do anything except in a general way to help this choice forward. She had never dreamed. Her roommates noticed how silent and thoughtful she was after her talk with Miss Ashton, and wondered what could be the cause. Surely she was too faithful and far too good a scholar for any remissness that would have to be rebuked, but no one asked her a question. It was after two days that Marion wrote her mother, and her letter caused a great surprise in the Western Parsonage. This is in part what she wrote. Miss Ashton has asked me what I am to do in the future. It seems they not only give you the regular curriculum, but are ready to allow you elective studies, by which you can fit yourselves for your particular future. I wonder if you will think me a foolish girl when I write you that, if you both approve, I should like to be a doctor. Don't laugh. I have seen so much sickness that there was no really educated physician to relieve, and am, as you have so often called me, a regular-born nurse, that the profession, if a profession I am capable of acquiring, seems very tempting to me. There is no hurry in the decision, only please think it over and write me your advice. It was not long before an answer came. You are quite capable of choosing for yourself, and if you turn naturally to the medical profession, you will have our full approval of your choice. When Marion read this, she felt as if she had grown suddenly many years older. She looked carefully over the list of studies to see from which she could gain the greatest help, and in a short time, after her conversation with Miss Ashton, she reported herself as a future M.D. This was not a rare profession for a young girl to choose. Miss Ashton knew that already there was a number with that in view. What she doubted was whether a quarter of them would ever carry out their intention, and this was one thing which, favoring on the whole as she did the elective system, she could but acknowledge, told against it, the certainty which their youth and the natural tendency of a girl's mind to change gave. She had known them in one year or even a shorter time, an enthusiast in one profession, then becoming tired of it and sure another was more suited to their abilities, turned to the new choice. One thing, however, was certain. She comforted herself by remembering that the mental discipline which they had acquired would stay with them, even after the whim of the time had ceased to influence them. 
There was an immediate effect, however, which Marion's decision had upon her. It interested her in those of her schoolmates who were looking forward to a definite and useful future. She could recall now how often her roommates had spoken of what they intended to do, but she had only listened to it as she had to what they said about their homes and their friends. How it became known to them that she, too, had made her choice for the future, she wandered over, but it was not long before they began to call her Doctor, as if she had already earned the title. Nellie Blair Gorham she had, from the first of her entering the school, taken a deep interest in. The small, deformed, pale girl had a pathos in her whole appearance that touched deeply Marion's sympathies. They were in different classes, and so far had come little in contact, but now she felt irresistibly drawn to the art studio during the hours when Helen was there, and standing near, watched her as she worked. Helen had all the shrinking sensitiveness which her misfortunes and her poverty, for she was poor, would naturally give her. Marion was strong of body and strong of mind, with a gentle, loving, sympathetic nature, speaking from every look and action, the one the counterpart of the other. Marion made an immediate choice, under Miss Ashton's instruction, of the studies that would help her in the future, and so, with redoubled interest in this school life, she bent to her work, learning day by day the value of trying to fasten her mind upon that and that alone. End of chapter 10